Welcome to History Hub's Educational Resources, a podcast series for all history students, young and old, from the School of History at University College Dublin. For more information on the series, go to historyhub.ie. My name is Dr Jennifer Wellington. I lecture Modern History in UCD's School of History, and I'm the series editor of History Hub's Educational Resources. In this episode, Dr Iriel Glynn is in conversation with Professor Diarmid Ferreter about the Anglo-Irish Treaty. Today we're joined by Professor Diarmid Ferreter, who is a Professor of Modern History here at University College Dublin. And he's going to be speaking to us about the treaty and how it came about and what its repercussions were. So, Dermot, just to start, how did the negotiations begin or why did the Irish come to the negotiating table? I think there was a recognition in both Britain and Ireland by the second half of 1921 that it wouldn't be possible either for the IRA or the British Crown Forces to inflict a decisive military defeat. Um, so there was a degree of stalemate. Um, I think one of the reasons why politics becomes more important is because there is that recognition that this war is becoming increasingly costly. costly. Uh, Britain is suffering serious reputational damage um, because of the bad news that's coming out of Ireland. Um, senior British politicians and military masters had maintained that they were containing their Irish problem, that they were on top of it, uh, that they were defeating the IRA, who they dismissed as a small murder gang. But clearly many of the dramatic happenings in 1920 and 1921 and the very high-profile controversies and killings and reprisals and counter-reprisals gave lie to that assertion that they were on top of the Irish War of Independence. Um, but for the Republicans as well, it was clear that there was a degree of war weariness. The civilian population, of course, as is, as is always the case, was hugely impacted by the conflict. The IRA was suffering from a shortage of arms. And there was, since the end of 1920, some exploration of whether or not there could be dialogue, secret dialogue between the Republican movement in Ireland and the British government via intermediaries. And even at the end of 1920, we know uh, that C.J. Phillips, who worked in the British Foreign Office, had referred to a slender link being established with Arthur Griffith, who was considered one of the more moderate within the Sinn Féin movement. And there were some attempts at the end of 1920 to try and create channels for negotiation. But they didn't come to anything at that stage because neither side really was ready. Neither side trusted the intentions of the other side. David Lloyd George's British Prime Minister was worried that it might be seen as a sign of British weakness if they were to get involved in negotiations. So there was still distrust. It's not until the summer of 1921 uh, that there are more opportunities for making that slender link something more substantial. And with the truce that's agreed between the British Crown Forces and the IRA in July of 1921, that opens up the possibility that the politicians can now enter the fray and begin to scope out the possibilities. And what results are actually a series of telegrams and letters between David Lloyd George as British Prime Minister Eamon, and Eamon de Valera as President of Sinn Féin and also self-styled President of the Irish Republic. And they are a reiteration really of the political positions of both sides in the sense that de Valera insists that the only acceptable outcome 
of Anglo-Irish negotiations is an Irish Republic. David Lloyd George insisting in response to that uh, that the integrity of the British Empire has to be retained and that Ireland will have to remain within the empire, but that within that there should be scope for discussion. And David Lloyd George and Eamon de Valera actually meet each other in London one-on-one -on -one, to discuss the possibilities for negotiations and don't agree on the way forward. Eamon de Valera gives him a very long lecture on the wrongs of Britain's activities in Ireland over the centuries. And David Lloyd George insists that there cannot be the granting of a republic to Ireland, that that's non-negotiable. Uh, and de Valera returns to uh, Dublin with that particular message. Um, he rejects David Lloyd George's offer of dominion status, that there could be a free state for the southern uh, counties, the 26 southern counties of Ireland. So that's what he is offering, and de Valera is adamant that that is unacceptable. You know, you're talking about these slender links, and you're talking about de Valera there. Who, who's making the decision? Who, whose decision is it to go to London? Is it a group decision? Is it an individual decision? De Valera very much drives what we would call now, I suppose, the foreign policy agenda of the Sinn Féin movement. Uh, it was his primary interest in politics, the relationship between Britain and Ireland, and he had given a lot more thought than many of his contemporaries to it. Um, you've also got to appreciate, I suppose, this isn't just about the politics of Anglo-Irish relations. It's also about being able to bring a broader Republican movement, including the IRA, with you. Uh, so de Valera has given this uh, considerable thought. He does tell the second Doyle in August 1921, during that summer, that we are not doctrinaire Republicans, suggesting that they were not absolutists, that there might be some wriggle room that there might be some possibility of them settling for something less than a republic. But he would have been conscious too that he would have to bring different wings of the republican movement with him. And what I mean by that is Sinn Féin was not necessarily a united family. It had always incorporated uh, more moderate voices as well, of, as well as those who were more advanced uh, republicans. I mean, even Arthur Griffith himself uh, had not been by any means a diehard republican, far from it. He was a believer in dual monarchy um, when he had established the Sinn Féin movement in the earlier part of the 20th century. So there is a variety of, of, of opinion within Sinn Féin. So de Valera is attempting to walk something of a tightrope in relation to the Republican movement. Um, but he also is formulating the idea of a third way, what's referred to as external association. Could there be an accommodation between Britain and Ireland that would involve Ireland accepting for reasons of geography as much of hi as history, because Britain is such a powerful neighbour, um, that they do need to recognise that there will be security and defence implications to any agreement between Britain and Ireland, and that Irish Republicans might be prepared to accept some form of association with the British Empire for those external purposes, for security purposes, for defence purposes, but that they will not be members of it. They will be associated with it. De Valera was very much one for fine-tuning these kind of distinctions, and he took them very seriously. And sometimes it was difficult for some of his contemporaries uh, to comprehend the precise path he was on. Uh, but in public, at least, in the summer of 1921, he is maintaining um, that what they still need to strive for is a republic. And is he influenced by events going on on the European continent, by the Paris peace talks, by minority treaties, by other new, newly formed states um, 
establishing themselves. Some Irish Republicans of that era are very conscious of, of the wider international context. I mean, there has been this whole question of the post-First World War dispensation, the rights of small nations, disputed boundaries. Ireland is already partitioned. It has been partitioned as a result of the Government of Ireland Act, which creates the new Northern Ireland. Um, that's very much in keeping with the whole theme of disputed boundaries um, after the First World War uh, and how they might be resolved. They're also conscious of South Africa, interestingly enough, because Jan Smuts, who is the Prime Minister of the South African Union, who had been part of the uh, British Imperial War Cabinet, he actually writes to de Valera from London in July and August of 1921, whilst this whole process of trying to get negotiations uh, underway uh, is ongoing. And he says to de Valera, uh, you're going to have to be more pragmatic, you're going to have to learn how to compromise. Uh, you say you want a republic, but there needs to be some form of other settlement. And of course, de Valera would have been conscious of the South African precedent uh, in relation to becoming a dominion uh, within the empire. Um, so, you know, that sense of, of, of there being precedent or that sense of there being a wider international context uh, for this is certainly there. But at the end of the day, this is going to be about a uniquely... Um, British-Irish solution as, as, as some of the Republican movement see it. They're not particularly interested in exploring um, what's happened in Australia or what's happened in South Africa. They're very much focused on the idea of separation from Britain. They see themselves as separatists um, and that's the frame of reference that they have. So in a sense, I suppose maybe de Valera was perhaps thinking in a broader way than some of his contemporaries. And, you know, you continually mention de Valera and all this, but then he didn't go to London. Why not? Well, there's an agreement by September that rather than a continued exchange of correspondence, which is going nowhere, it would be better to sit down. That conference, rather than correspondence, uh, would hold out the best prospects of some kind of a solution. And that made sense because it offered both sides an opportunity to tease out uh, very contentious issues. The bombshell at the outset is that de Valera is not going to be part of that delegation. What an extraordinary decision to make. Um, it caused controversy at the time. It continued to cause controversy. And even as a very old man, Eamon de Valera was looking back at that decision and seeking to defend it um, 40 years after the events of 1921 and 1922. So he was very conscious that it was the most controversial decision uh, of his career, uh, that whole treaty episode. He justified it on the basis that he needed to remain in Ireland as a symbol of the unity of the Republic and of the Republican movement. That he couldn't become tarnished by the failure of negotiations if they were to fail. That he needed to be there as a symbol uh, of the Irish Republic, but that he could also possibly be in Dublin as a final court of appeal if things went wrong. Um, he suggested at the time there were overwhelming reasons why he should stay in Dublin. Now, you could take that with a pinch of salt, and certainly his contemporaries within Sinn Féin were not convinced of that explanation. Some of them used the analogy of a football team. You know, why would you go out to play a match, an away match, without your best player, uh, or your best player on the, um, on the benches? Um, so there was a scepticism about that. There was also on the part of some a distrust that he was setting others up for a fall. 
that he didn't want to be the one who would bring back the inevitable bad news. And I say inevitable because at no stage was a republic on offer. It was never on the table. And one of the arguments that was being made in criticising those who eventually signed the treaty was that they didn't bring back the republic. It was never there to be brought back in the first place. So de Valera's decision was very, very controversial. Michael Collins and Arthur Griffith um, were, of course, very high-profile members of the uh, delegation. Um, was it a surprise that Michael Collins was there? Well, we have to be careful of the idea that Collins was this soldier plucked from the fight uh, into an alien um, atmosphere of negotiations. Michael Collins wanted to be part of the solution to the Anglo-Irish problem, but he was worried that he was being set up uh, for a fall. Uh, but he did want to be involved uh, in it. So it was interesting. And I mean, the negotiation of the Anglo-Irish Treaty is not just about politics and position papers and the contentious issues that came up during negotiations. It's also about psychology. You know, we have to think about the emotion and the psychology associated with uh, the negotiations, the vulnerabilities that were there, but also the opportunities. Uh, there was no guarantee of success. There's the likelihood of failure. Um, there is optimism on the part of some, but there's also apprehension. Um, and the dynamics of that conflict, um, or the dynamics of the negotiations become very interesting because it is an inexperienced Irish delegation. They are facing a very heavyweight British uh, political te team. You have David Lloyd George as Prime Minister. You've got senior uh, Conservatives like Austin Chamberlain and Lord Birkenhead. And then you have, of course, Winston Churchill, the Secretary of State for War, um, who, of course, is very much associated with some of the uh, British excesses in Ireland during the War of Independence also. And then there's the whole intrigue and fascination with Michael Collins, uh, what one of his biographers referred to as Collins mania. Michael Collins is very famous, and he's a celebrity. And, of course, he has been very much a wanted man. So how is he going to be received in Downing Street? How are British politicians or the British political establishment going to cope with the idea of meeting these terrorists? And that's how they have been characterising them. So all of that is intriguing uh, from a, a public point of view as well. And there's pressure on the negotiators too. There are people praying outside Downing Street, hoping for peace. The stakes are very, very high. And then you've got to consider what the contentious issues were. Yeah, so what was on the table? You said the Republic is off the table. You talk about the psychology of these negotiations. So what, what were they going there to discuss? It's interesting, I think, that the Irish delegation did perhaps not have its bottom line worked out. They were not as prepared as the British side. The British negotiators were adamant that Ireland had to remain within the empire, no matter what the uh, settlement they came up with was. They believed that they could carry public opinion on the question of the empire. But the British side felt they were more vulnerable in relation to Northern Ireland. Because one of the aims of the Sinn Féin negotiators is to secure what they called the essential unity of the island of Ireland. That would involve the new Northern Ireland accepting an all-Ireland solution. Not necessarily that the Northern Ireland Parliament would have to be abolished, uh, but that it would ultimately be answerable to Dublin. Um, and, you know, the British side are aware, at least they'll admit in private, that they're on weak ground in relation to the partition of Ireland. Uh, even many senior Tories who were sympathetic to the Ulster Unionist cause did not believe it had been a good idea 
uh, to partition a small island, either for political reasons or for economic reasons. Um, so they do feel a certain vulnerability on that. And they come up with this idea of a boundary commission to try and get over the hump of the Ulster problem, that they promise a boundary commission that at some future stage will examine the border as it exists and perhaps make recommendations as to altering that border, which the Irish delegation were led to believe would lead to significant alterations of the border, which would make a tiny Northern Ireland simply unviable. So that was one of the tactics that they employed there, and Arthur Griffith was persuaded, particularly by David Lloyd George, uh, to agree to that. They were sold a pup, but you could see what the, what the British strategy was. Uh, obviously, the, the, the other questions relating to the empire also had to do with whether Britain would have a continued naval presence or military presence uh, in Ireland. Uh, would Irish parliamentarians have to swear an oath of allegiance to the crown as head um, of the British Empire, given that they were going to be a dominion-free state? Um, and the whole question of fiscal autonomy. Would Ireland or a free state Ireland have control over its own um, economic affairs and its own economic resources? Um, so all of these issues were contentious. Perhaps the most contentious uh, was the issue of, of the essential unity of Ireland uh, and then, of course, the question of the oath of allegiance. Could there be a form of wording um, that the Sinn Féin movement could swallow? And none of these issues, of course, uh, were easy. Um, and what is vital to any understanding of the signing of the treaty on the 6th of December 1921 was the threat that the British Prime Minister David Lloyd George made of war, immediate and terrible war, within three days if the treaty was not signed. Now, was he bluffing? Perhaps. But were the Irish delegation in a position to call his bluff? Perhaps not. Was that the main reason they did sign it? Well, they sign um, some with great reluctance, with a heavy heart. Uh, Arthur Griffith believed it was a noble compromise. He was prepared to sign it even if the other delegates didn't sign it, um, which you could say was a mistake in terms of the unity of the delegation. But it does give you an idea of how fraught uh, the atmosphere was and how uh, he seems to be more comfortable with the compromise um, than some of his colleagues, including, of course, uh, Michael Collins. So the threat of war certainly is one factor. Uh, the fear of the backlash and the possible reaction uh, is obviously something that's weighing very heavily on their minds as well. But you've got to consider um, what would have been involved in going back to war. What would the implications have been, not just for the Republican movement, but for Irish society generally and for the civilian uh, population? Uh, so the stakes are very high. Uh, they're very big decisions to make. Um, and there was always controversies as well about uh, the manner in which they signed without a final referral back to Dublin. And this is another interesting thing about the treaty negotiations. In a sense, there was both a Dublin Sinn Féin and a London Sinn Féin during the treaty negotiations. And things got tense between them because de Valera um, was at one stage corresponding uh, with Arthur Griffith suggesting that he might have to come over himself um, to put some kind of shape uh, on the Irish delegation. And they hugely resented what they regarded as an interference with their powers. And that very issue, what were their powers? They were officially described as plenipotentiaries. What does a plenipotentiary do? They're supposed to negotiate and conclude an agreement or have the power to negotiate and conclude an agreement. 
But the delegation also seems to have contradictory instructions, which were that they had have to refer everything back to the cabinet of Dublin for a final say, which is effectively a veto, whereas their plenipotentiary powers had been accorded to them by the Doyle, by a vote of the Doyle. So were they answerable to Parliament or were they answerable to Cabinet? That's a very contentious issue and of course becomes controversial after they signed the treaty also. So, you know, there, there are an awful lot of complications for uh, the Irish delegation. Um, the British uh, delegation were not in such a difficult position politically. Uh, David Lloyd George was well aware that he was presiding over a coalition government, um, but he was also aware that there was a broad consensus on the British side that they needed to get the Irish question off the table of Downing Street. Um, and that if they could get it off the table of Downing, Downing Street while keeping Ireland within the empire, they had their job done. And they did have their job done. Um, and David Lloyd George was able to get the treaty to the House of Commons with considerable ease. Um, but it's much, much more, of course, contested in Ireland. And the cabinet, the Sinn Féin cabinet splits four in favour and three against. And again, the amount of emotion and anger that was swirling around when the Irish delegation came back to Dublin. Um, a great sense of betrayal on the part of those who were completely opposed to this compromise. A frustration on the part of, of, of Collins and Arthur Griffith um, that there was not an acceptance that this was a beginning rather than an end, that it represented an opportunity um, to achieve ever greater freedom down the road. So they, you know, you mentioned how this prospect of war uh, beginning again three days after if negotiations stalled, if they, if they refused to sign. Um, were they aware, were Griffith and Collins aware that they might be facing a different kind of war, a civil war with signing this? Or was this later that it becomes more obvious that this is going to lead to serious repercussions in that sense? No one is talking about civil war in December 1921, but at the same time, uh, it's clear that this has the potential to shatter the unity of the Sinn Féin movement. Now, you can exaggerate the idea of the unity of the Sinn Féin movement anyway. Um, I mean, after 1916, there was uh, an attempt to put um, uh, the Sinn Féin under the one umbrella of the Republic, or what some were now saying was perhaps a straitjacket uh, of the Republic, which was a recognition uh, that it was always difficult to keep everybody under uh, the one umbrella. But now these divisions were going to be uh, very, very public. Um, and I'm sure some people were, were afraid about how uh, that might impact on the IRA in particular, because this wasn't just about negotiators um, and Sinn Féin ministers um, uh, making decisions in London. There was also the question of how the IRA would view this. The IRA were not kept abreast of developments to the extent that they arguably should have been. But there were also many in the IRA who didn't give a damn about politics, who had no interest in politics, who saw themselves as soldiers. Um, and they're not necessarily engaged with the politics of Anglo-Irish compromise. Um, so there's no uh, way of knowing what way the IRA uh, is going to react to this. There was a belief on the part of some that what's good enough for Mick Collins is good enough for me. Um, but that was only going to get Collins so far. Uh, he didn't have that kind uh, of complete authority uh, over the IRA. And let's not forget, there's a further strand, which is, how is the Irish Republican Brotherhood going to react? 
because the Irish Republican Brotherhood is still very much in existence. It's a secret, oath-bound, clandestine organisation. Collins, of course, is a very senior member of it. Can he sell this treaty to the Irish Republican Brotherhood? So you've got the IRA challenge, the IRB challenge, and the Sinn Féin challenge. And if you take the combination of them, you have a potentially uh, very lethal cocktail. Um, but initially, the focus is very much on the politics. You know, the very high-profile treaty debates between December and early January 1922, uh, which are very emotive. They become very personalised. There's a lot of focus on the wrongs and rights uh, of, of, of the signing of the treaty at all um, and the actions of the um, Irish delegation. There isn't a huge amount of focus on, on the Ulster question. There's a broad acceptance, it seems, that the Boundary Commission could hold out the possibility uh, of unity. Um, but it's clear that long-simmering tensions within the Sinn Féin movement actually are coming to the fore uh, during these treaty debates. Um, and there's also those who are both ardent Republicans and keepers of the flame of those who have given their lives. Mary McSweeney, for example, who made such a lengthy contribution to the treaty debates. She's both the keeper of the flame of Terence McSweeney, her brother, who famously died on hunger strike during the War of Independence, the Lord Mayor of Cork, but she's also herself a Republican TD, a Sinn Féin TD, um, who was adamant that this is a betrayal. Um, and that accusation of betrayal is very strong. On the other side, of course, there are those who are arguing that this gives Ireland independence in substance, that it could be a stepping stone um, to even more independence, that it's the best that is on offer uh, at that stage, and that there has to be a degree of pragmatism uh, about it. Um, so these become very heated debates, they become very personalised uh, and very emotional. Um, I think the Christmas break, which occurs during the treaty, um, uh, discussion, the treaty debate, um, also puts perhaps more pressure on Sinn Féin TDs who go back to their constituents, many of whom want the peace to continue. Um, the Catholic Church intervenes, um, which, making the argument, of course, that there is an onus now on politicians to make sure there is stability, that we can continue um, peace. Um, so I think that helps the pro-treaty uh, side of the argument. And eventually the vote is taken on the 7th of January. There are 64 Sinn Féin TDs in favour and 57 against. So it's very close, but it might have been even closer had the vote taken place before Christmas. So we've touched on you know, the civil war in the background that is brewing, but what other consequences were there of the treaty being signed for Ireland? You know, looking back on it nearly 100 years later, what is it that stands out? One of the pressures that's on the pro-treaty side is to show that there are tangible benefits to this treaty, immediate tangible benefits. After the treaties accepted by the Dáil, there is the formation of a provisional government. There is the handover of Dublin Castle, the historic centre of British rule in Ireland, to this new provisional government. Um, that was regarded as a very important and symbolic moment. Much is made in contemporary reportage, pro-treaty reportage of the surrender uh, of Dublin Castle. That meant an awful lot um, in relation to the pro-treaty uh, side. Um, but there's also, I suppose, the, um, the question of betrayal or that feeling uh, of betrayal, uh, which only becomes deeper when it is realised what this treaty is going to do 
to the Sinn Féin movement and to the country at large because families are dividing, communities uh, are dividing. Um, so there is that profound sense of unease. The first half of 1922, what we would call, I suppose, the drift to civil war, actually witnesses an awful lot of attempts uh, at bringing the two sides together. Civil war, you could argue, was not inevitable. There could have been the possibility, or there, there, there was the possibility of trying to bring the two sides together uh, without resort uh, to violence. And there were various attempts that were made, both by politicians and indeed by those who were involved uh, in the IRA, who try and style themselves as neutral. And many were neutral uh, on the question uh, of the treaty, but also the Catholic Church. Uh, even the Archbishop of Dublin um, intervenes with the Lord Mayor uh, of Dublin to try and sponsor a kind of a peace conference in, in the Mansion House. So there are various attempts um, at peace. Um, de Valera is still intent on pushing the idea of a third way, his external association, or what becomes known as, as, as document number two. Uh, but it seems he has miscalculated, because uh, de Valera's third way isn't ardent enough uh, for uh, the IRA, and it's too far removed from the treaty for the pro-treaty side. So de Valera kind of falls between the two stools. And of course, there are also those now becoming more hardline within the IRA um, who don't give a damn uh, about the uh, political uh, dimensions. Um, they are adamant that this is a, a complete betrayal of everything that the IRA has fought for. Um, and they are becoming very resolute, particularly as you come into the spring of 1922, to the point where they actually occupy the forecourts in the middle uh, of Dublin City, uh, an act of defiance, daring, it seems, the provisional government to do something about their presence. Um, so again, you know, the stakes are very high there, and still you have um, ongoing pressure from Britain, Winston Churchill in particular, corresponding with Michael Collins, essentially saying, if you don't remove those defiant Republicans from the forecourts, we will. And by this stage, had British troops left Ireland? British troops don't fully leave Ireland. They dribble away. Um, Winston Churchill is adamant that there is not going to be full evacuation uh, until the provisional government has established its authority, both politically and militarily. And of course, that would involve getting up and running a, a, a new uh, army, uh, for this new free state. Um, so there isn't a full evacuation uh, of, of British troops until the very end uh, of 1922. Um, so there is a continued British military presence, but they are keeping a low profile. General Neville Macready, who had commanded the British forces in Ireland during the War of Independence, is still in Ireland, and he is overseeing this quite uneasy uh, phase uh, for the British Army. Um, but there are very visible signs of British evacuation. Um, in the first half of 1922 because, you know, various groups of them are moving out um, and they're photographed moving out. Uh, there is the evacuation of barracks, of various barracks, barracks around the country, which are now being occupied um, by what you could call the pro-treaty IRA. But that occupation is also being contested in, in certain barracks by what's now being referred to as the anti-treaty IRA. After the four courts, is, is it inevitable that civil war is, is going to happen? There are a number of things that happen in April, May and June of, of 1922. Um, there is obviously the, the ongoing defiance uh, with the occupation of the four courts, which the IRA is using as its, its headquarters, essentially the anti-treaty IRA. 
Um, but there is also a general election uh, in June 1922. Um, the pro-treaty side do better uh, in that election. The Labour Party does very well also, which would suggest that there are those who had their minds on bread and butter issues rather than questions of oath of allegiances or, or you know, the provisions uh, of the treaty. Um, and there's also, I suppose, the growing sense of, of, of despair uh, on the part of Britain um, that uh, this is a problem that is not being managed to their liking, you know, and they are making ever-increasing threatening noises uh, which are um, further cemented by the assassination of Sir Henry Wilson in a very audacious killing on his London doorstep um, towards the end of June 1922. Uh, he's killed by uh, two freelance uh, members of the IRA, it seems. It's not that it was authorised uh, necessarily by those who were in Dublin. Um, but again, as far as the British government was concerned, this was just a further uh, defiance, and that was the straw that broke the camel's back. And they then demanded that the provisional government move against uh, the, four course, the Four Courts garrison, um, which they duly did, using, of course, the assistance, the military assistance of the British side, and so began uh, the civil war. Was it inevitable? I think it was inevitable. Uh, or some form of conflict was inevitable um, once that occupation of the four courts uh, uh, in April happened. Um, the sense that there are those within the anti-treaty IRA um, who are not going to listen to politicians. They're not going to listen to a treaty debate. Um, there is only one way they feel that they can resolve what they regard as this betrayal, um, and that is to take up arms again in defence of the Republic. Yeah, and it's amazing that earlier this year, you know, several experts were talking about the fact that this could be, in 2020, nearly 100 years later, the end of civil war politics. So the legacy the treaty had and its signing and the aftermath had has been huge for Irish society. So thanks so much, Professor Dermot Ferreira, for outlining the, uh, the treaty and its implications for Irish society more generally.